1: Here's a good
2: idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You're listening to Getting to the Point, the business reinvention podcast from Big Small. In this series, we hear inspiring stories from those who've cut through complexity and confusion to redefine their brands and businesses. Welcome, David. Thank you very much for talking to us on Getting to the Point. Um, first of all, if you could just give us um, a little... Uh, description of yourself
3: you're probably talking to me because for the last 20 years I've worked for three footsie top 20 companies and been responsible for building their brands um, so I guess I'd style myself as experienced in brand building and one of the things I've learned all three of these companies being in the service business is the most important thing is to build the brand inside out so everybody who works, in the company and everybody who's delivering on the customer value proposition has to understand what it is. It has to resonate with them and you have to get them excited about it. And in order to do that, um, you have to know how to keep things simple. My favorite Steve Jobs quote was more or less something like, it's complex, keeping things simple. Because, you know, to simplify, you have to go through lots of work to get to the point. Um, And to get to the point, is one of the things I've learned along the way to do more crisply than I have just done. But you're warming me up, so we Will forgive me for that.
2: <laughs> now that's a fantastic start. So you've um, previously said that um, you had to actively campaign to ensure RBS brands had a point of view. Could you tell us a bit about um, what that campaigning involved?
3: Well, I, mean, I think you know when I joined RBS, I had the great joy and I recommend it highly to anybody who's building their career. Whatever you do along the way, find a job, that means that when you change jobs, you have to do gardening leave. And I couldn't start at RBS. I was being paid by my old employee, but it was for the three months on gardening leave. And so I enjoyed my time off, had time to relax, but also time to look at RBS from the outside and think about it. And actually the first thing I could see that inside RBS were several customer-facing brands. The most notable one, of course, is the Royal Bank of Scotland, the customer-facing brand in Scotland. And actually what customers call that bank when they bank with it is the Royal Bank. They don't call it RBS. RBS was an invention of the marketing folk and the leadership of the Royal Bank of Scotland back in the early 2000s when they wanted to go global. And when they wanted to go global, they did all the things that you do to simplify. Royal Bank of Scotland's a bit of a mouthful. Let's call it RBS. Let's make sure the name gets out and about. Let's make sure we sponsor the right things. Fred Goodwin being a fan of Formula One, that led to a Formula One sponsorship. Fred being a golfer, etc. So the RBS brand building, when they had global brand ambitions, was brilliantly done, actually, back in the early 2000s. What went wrong was the business couldn't live up to it. So when the bank collapsed in 2008, and the state had to bail the bank out. What the next 10 years was about was recovering the bank, getting it back onto a firm footing, building up the capital, sorting out all the legacy problems. And as everybody unraveled the business, the thing that they hadn't done was to unravel the global brand. So I spotted all of that from the outside, not rocket science, by the way. What is tricky is to arrive in a company and say, We need to stop talking about RBS, we need to rebirth the brands that the customers deal with. So in Scotland, the Royal Bank of Scotland, in England and Wales, NatWest, in the island of Ireland, Ulster, and for the well-heeled, Coots. And actually what we focused on was how we were gonna rebirth those brands. So another thing I spotted on the outside, I've never quite got to the bottom of why this was, but let me go, with, with the interests of efficiency, what they used to do before I got there was make ads. And if you were in Scotland, you'd see one of my favorite ones actually was a beautiful little mortgage ad um, with Jack, young boy, you may remember it, very nice. Jack talking about his mum being pregnant, the house they were going to buy, and it was all very emotional. And if you watch that on STV, you'd see it with a Scottish voiceover, and it would, of course, end with the Royal Bank of Scotland logo. But if you then we're watching television and flipped to watch Sky Sports you would see exactly the same ad this time with an english voiceover and with a natwest logo on the end and as i said when i arrived that isn't how you build brands that's how you kill them so the first thing we set about doing was separating out the brands and building the provenance of each brand for each customer group and as you know you know the scots fiercely proud of Scotland in all sorts of ways and actually one of the rigors we put in place was to make sure we always talked about the Royal Bank because that's what customers did and actually to your complexity here that worked so well that the non-execs used to call out people in the executive committee if they started talking about RBS in Scotland they go no no you don't call it that remember it's what's it called it's called the Royal Bank so Fairly complex thing to do, but simple to execute. So that was step number one. Then to your theme here, you know, you've got to get to the point of these brands. Why do they exist? And, you know, you can simplify it right down to use old fashioned speak. You know, what's the positioning of the brand? How are we going to do it? And what we thought our customers needed of us was to be proactive and serve up how people could get the most out of their money and and be thoughtful about it and obviously in a data driven world you can see for instance if somebody's going to be overdrawn shortly and if you let them know that via text message they can avoid being overdrawn and you know the notion was we would be proactive but actually when it came to communication we really set about rebirthing each of the brands and and that involved Leith in Scotland, doing some fantastic work for the Royal Bank. And if you look at the data today, the Royal Bank in Scotland is one of the fastest improving brands in Scotland, and a complete turnaround, having been the most hated brand in the most hated sector. So not easy to get to that outcome, but you know easy to have the insight. And ironically, it all came from being able to observe it from the outside. When I then got on the inside, Then the tough work starts of how do you convince everybody from the top down that that's the right thing to do, and how do you get them on side with doing it? And that is the hard graft of shoe leather conversations, talking to people, sharing things with people, testing, learning, developing, and eventually getting to the outcome, which was when we rebooted the NatWest brand, for instance, that was in... September 2016, so 13, 14 months work to get there. And the brand idea of NatWest bringing the positioning to life was based on that old, very old idea, Aristotle's idea. We are what we do. So, you know, don't listen to what we say, what's what we do? And what that meant for the front line was we will deliver great service and, you know, you will recommend us if we do that. And we're not going to tell you we do great service, we're just going to do it. So we set about doing that. And actually what you could see pretty quickly in the data was a great response externally, but probably the most important thing was a great response internally with real rebuilding of the pride of each of the brands. Because you know, if you go back, imagine what it would have been like to work in 2009 in RBS when the bank had collapsed and the taxpayer was saving it. A lot of people wouldn't even say that's where they worked because people challenged it. So internal pride was key.
2: So why is it, and this may be, you've covered a bit, but there, a bit of this in, in what you just said, but why is it good business sense to build your brand from the inside
3: out? First of all, let's start with, depends what you think a brand is. You know, I'm a big fan of brands, not for any intellectual reason, but that's what customers deal with. If you bank with NatWest, it's the NatWest brand. You can't call a call center where somebody will go, oh, no, no, listen, I'm in the call center in Greenwich. That's nothing to do with me. That's your branch. For a customer, the whole thing is NatWest. But you know, this is probably a lesson I really learned at Vodafone, actually, because Vodafone I had worked with from on the outside when I was at Tempest Partners, which then bought by WPP. And we were like the outsourced marketing department in the early days of the global brand building. And worth remembering that Vodafone was built through what, at the time, and I think still is, the world's largest ever hostile takeover. So, you know, Vodafone took Manishman, a German multinational over, and acquired all these local brands, whether it was D2 in Germany or Omnitel in Italy or Airtel in Spain and so on. And they all had to be rebranded to Vodafone. And that was also... Not an inconsiderable task. And well, we did it from the outside, but eventually, when I went to work on the inside, one of the things I'd seen from the outside is the cultures weren't unified. There wasn't a common language around the brands becoming Vodafone, and what did Vodafone stand for? And what would it mean you were doing? And we did some work which was about the internal brand values, and they manifested themselves quite brilliantly as red rock solid and restless there was a 40 chart presentation that went with that but in essence it was we're passionate people we're very passionate about what we do that's why we work we're very proud of the company we're in we're very proud of the service we deliver and that's what red is about rock solid is all about you know you're with this network because you want the network to work you need to depend on it needs to be reliable needs to work and restless because good is never good good enough we're always trying to do better and we introduce that again from the inside out starting with the exco i went around saw each member to talk to them about this and my favorite anecdote of that was the guy who was the ceo of vodafone in japan because there was a vodafone in japan then said i can't i can't imagine going back to my executive committee and talking about this because it's just silly that's tough they won't know what we're talking about and i said all right well do me a favor tom what i'd like you to do Is see if in the shower tomorrow morning you can remember what I just said because if you can, we're probably on to something. And he had the good grace the next morning to say, Yep, I did, and yeah, you're right. And he went back and did that. And actually, what happened is by a close partnership with HR, each market found its own way to bring these internal values to life. They all did red, rock solid and restless workshops and we watched it kind of hum and grow and it was magnificent and I knew we'd absolutely nailed it when I was at a, it was in Monza I think, we were at a Formula One race and at the time we sponsored Ferrari and Arun Sarin, who was the then CEO, was welcoming the guests to the hospitality suite and he said, listen, just like Ferrari, we're red rock solid and restless and we at Vodafone and I hadn't given him a script. I hadn't told him what to say. And he did it. I thought, wow, that's it. Job done. It's great. There's also an interesting flip to this good lesson in this. Come a change of CEO, CEO, when Vittorio Colau became CEO, he dropped red rock solid and restless for reasons I never particularly understood and changed it for something else. So there's a problem in when you do this, you have to do it so it endures. So I learned a lesson there. It was brilliant and it worked very well, but how do you keep it so that it's going to last forever? And that's tricky. And I, as I've left several companies, I've always pondered how much work will stay in place and how people will build on it because that's what should happen. But that was a real lesson in the inside out. Clockwork forward to NatWest again and RBS. You know, what we did there was a lot of leadership work. With the teams explaining in workshops, this is what we're trying to do, this is why, what does it mean for you? Give us feedback. And obviously, what's happened in the trajectory of my career is technology has become the great enabler of all of this. And actually, as I've been watching COVID through the lens I'll describe as slow living, I mean, I didn't intend to retire to enjoy the benefits of COVID, but that's how it happened. You know, I stopped full time work at the end of March, so I haven't. Live the zoom nightmare that all you lovely people listen to this app what i've seen is that technology enables you to connect much faster get feedback much faster and it also means that whatever you do better be authentic and it better be able to withstand criticism because you'll get it immediately so if i go all the way back you know when we did ads in the 80s You would sell them to clients and they would run, you'd twiddle your thumbs You'd wait to see what the sales results were, what the research was, what the anecdotal feedback was. And, you know, sometime later, let's say from going on air to deeming it to be a success or failure, rather like your proposition was probably about 12 weeks. Today, it's immediate. You know the moment you have said something, done something, whether it's going to resonate or not which is brilliant. But that, you know, this is why you've got to build brands from the inside out, because you've got to have everybody aligned. They've got to understand what they're delivering. And they've got to be able to challenge anything that you're saying, which is undeliverable.
2: Excellent. So talking about authenticity, which you've touched on there, why is it important for brands then to back up their promise with the proof?
3: This leads us neatly into the interesting territory of purpose. And, the, you know, I've observed the difference between the purpose of a corporation and how important it is to define that and brand purpose. This is a Mark Whitson quote, which means I can get away with it. There's an awful lot of bollocks spoken about brand purpose. You can't speak nonsense about corporate purpose because that's now... Subject to corporate governance in a very different way, and you know, I was asked by Ross McEwen on behalf of the board and the Exco to lead the work on the new purpose for the Nat, what is now the NatWest Group. So, you know, my point of departure was to get the corporate name changed, to introduce the new purpose, and to go. Thank you very much, job done, and hand it on. And what I've enjoyed watching from the outside is how well the NatWest Group has done. To deliver on its purpose. Now, it took two, two years to get to that purpose. And a lesson I learned from Unilever, it was Keith Weed that told me that it takes a year per layer to get everybody to understand what the corporate purpose is and to deliver against it. So by the time I left, I said, so there you go, a year for the board, a year for the Exco, two years, and it's up and running. And now the next bit is to get everybody to understand it and buy in and deliver against it. If you're going to put a purpose out there, your most critical audience will be your own employees and your own staff. And actually, these days, as all research shows, if you want to attract and retain the best talent, you need to have a purpose that resonates with them that they believe in, and that they see you delivering, and that they are also enabled to challenge when you don't. And that is a really radical shift of how a company works. And I think it's a fantastic shift for society. I don't know if you've seen David Attenborough's latest film, which his witness statement about what's going on, which I, I urge everybody listening to this to look at and get on with doing something about it. You know, We've got to save the world around us. We've got to rewild the world. We've got to make sure we hand it on in sustainable fashion to those that come after us. And what that means for a bank, for instance, is shifting the investment portfolio from fossil fuels to new, sustainable fuels that are friendlier to the planet. And if you're a supporter of some of the biggest fossil fuel companies in the world, nudging them gently to start shifting, and look at the shifts that you know we've all read about BP and shell making, which is good to see, but everybody needs to hurry up and do it. So the role of corporate purpose is really, really significant. Larry Fink, um, who is the CEO of BlackRock, one of the biggest investors in the world, sent a letter with wonderful serendipity, arrived on Ross McEwan's desk the same day I arrived with the work plan about how we were going to approach getting to the corporate purpose. And that was two and a half years ago now. And actually, when you've got investors demanding that you behave in a different way, and this behavior is, of course, the shift from just delivering shareholder profit to the three Ps of people, planet, and profit, Uh, And it's great to see companies doing that. But it needs a real shift in culture for people to believe what you're doing and to enable you to do better things. And I I can see companies doing that really well. I can see other companies that do um, the lipstick on a pig version of that, which is to say the right thing, but to do the wrong thing.
2: You're listening to Getting to the Point, the business reinvention podcast from Big Small.
1: When we work in purpose, uh, when we talk about purpose-driven companies, it's it's making that distinction between a company that does good and uh, kind of laddering up all of the benefits of being purpose-driven in the sense that as you said, it's in some ways you can focus and align teams around purpose. You can, it's a recruitment tool. It's, um, it can drive decision-making across the business and make that much more efficient. So ultimately you end up with a single-minded, wholehearted brand, which is the thing in a world full of stuff, which is is, is the thing everyone's aiming at. So actually, I wonder if there's that's a point of view, but I wonder if you had a a thought on what purpose-driven business looks like and that it's much more than doing good
3: yeah i mean i think you know it ranges from doing good things to do well but still focusing on delivering a profit to the other end when people set out their stall of how they're going to help make the world a better place more sustainable place how they're going to look after their employees worry about their well-being how they're going to train and develop people and do the 360 version of that which is really difficult to do. And if you take the gold standard is Unilever and their sustainable living plan, you know, they've been at that for 10 years. You will look at some Unilever brands and see people still questioning, why does that exist and how does that fit our sustainable living plan? And in fact, as they've shifted CEO, you know, one of the things Alan Jope is doing, is really looking at the portfolio of brands to making sure they're all delivering on the promise. And it's a remarkable story, but it's also a great demonstration of just how difficult this is, especially if you then go back up your supply chain. So if you're gonna start talking about your tea brand, you have gotta go all the way back to where are we growing this? How are we growing it? How are we rewarding the people that are doing it for us? What are they, et cetera? And actually, it's detailed, complex work, but it's really, really significant. Takes time, takes commitment, takes governance and oversight, um, but it's what the world demands now. And actually, I'm not sure it's what consumers demand just yet. I think if it was back when I was at Barclays and we were doing the purpose work there. I remember listening to the CEO of H&M, fantastic purpose-driven company, and he was showing A whole line of clothes that were developed in totally sustainable fashion with the supply chain thought about which of course had a premium attached to them because of the price at the time and the question was so are you finding they're selling better than the other ones to which the answer was the wonderfully poignant not yet Mm. i'm not tracking the data there but i do think you know there's a and this is probably a pandemic effect People are being a bit more thoughtful about what they're buying and whether what they're buying is a force for good or a force for the status quo. And it's good to challenge the status quo, but tough subject. And as I used to say to my team, you can tell whether somebody knows the answer to a question because a short answer equals they know the answer. A long answer is they don't. So I, I, I think this is a tough, it's a great question, but there is no... Simple answer to it. It's a a long grind to get there, but it's a really, really important one. You know, if we we look back at Barclays for a minute, Mm. my point of entry for Barclays was when Bob Diamond became the CEO and Bob Diamond had previously run what he called Barcap, the investment bank, the Barclays Investment Bank, and had been a fierce advocate of the need to keep all the business units separate and effectively separately branded with separate positionings, even though they were all called Barclays in some way or another. And of course, when he became the CEO, he was absolutely classic poacher-turned-gamekeeper and wanted to build one brand. So my job was started by, you know, we're going to need one set of brand values. So remember, I took my Vodafone learning in there and thought we should do that. HR had decided with my prompting that I would be put through the induction day of each of the six businesses that made up the Barclays empire. And I sat there taking notes, this was through January, February, March, and when I arrived at the Exco in April and said, so, you know, just to let you know how this is going, you want one set of values. Bob, you told me that these were the five values on which Barclays is going to be built. They're actually the values that I heard when I went to the investment bank, but I also heard These other 30, which are being used in other bits of the bank. So we don't have the commonality of values that people are operating to. That means we're not going to be able to have the commonality of purpose. So here's what we should do to get to that. And we started doing that work in April 2012, again, in partnership with HR. But in early July 2012, as students of financial services will know, Barclays achieved And the first, I think, in corporate history, which was the CEO, the chairman and the COO were all mislaid across one weekend. And when we came into the office on the Monday, thinking, what should we do now? Now Bob has gone. The chairman had actually come back to start the pursuit of a new CEO. And HR said, well, we need to stop this work because it's all too painful. I said, no, no, no. We need to really get on with this work because whoever the new CEO is, he or she is going to need this work. And I went to the Exco sponsor of this work to say a bit of a disagreement between me and HR. Uh, I think we should get on with it. They think we should stop it. What do you think we should do? To which the sponsor of the Exco said, Yeah, you should get on with it. And that gentleman was Anthony Jenkins, uh, who became the CEO in September. And then off went the values, up came the purpose, and that was all great. And when I left to join, Uh, RBS, that was still in place, but not long after I left, Anthony left too, and I think the first thing the incoming regime did was to take down the values that were in the reception and stop the purpose and start it all again, which is a bit of a shame, because to go back to what we already talked about, if you're working for a company, you're sitting there going, hang on a minute, I really, I understood those values, I really liked them, and I really liked them, the whole notion of the purpose, helping people achieve their ambitions in the right way. So why are we dropping that? And actually, regime change is not a good enough answer, actually. So I'm I'm glad I wasn't there to have to say, oh, we're dropping it because the new regime don't like that, they want a new one. But that is the dilemma, because what the world demands today, in the same spirit of sustainability, is companies who know why they exist, know what they're doing, know how they're doing it, and consistently deliver against it, because that's the role of sustainable purpose. And I think that's what we're seeing. But as you guys know, when you're engaged to do this stuff with people, uh, problem number one is aligning all the different bits of the organization and making sure the silos lined up and the delivery is done. And as I've said before, that's not easy, but you can simplify it through great engagement, great clarity of communication and willingness to take feedback. So in your
2: 20 years, the world has become more complex um, and people's lives are kind of full of, full of stuff. So, so getting to that simplicity and, and getting to the point and, and for the outside world to understand the point of a, of a brand, has that, raised, well, has that raised the importance of simplicity um, throughout, you know, from the beginning to now? Right, your career, yeah,
3: yeah I, I think it has. I also think you know it's always important to remember that customers don't love brands as much as we folk who build brands do. And the day that you wake up, you know, go, I wonder how everybody's doing loving, you know, fill in brand X today. The answer is they're not, they're, it's pretty easy to piss them off, and if you get things wrong, you'll see that. But if you, you get things right and you're just doing what you're supposed to, they're probably just going to remain loyal and keep doing things. And the whole notion of you know building brand love which is what brand people will say is an interesting one because you know when we were talking about that in my team inside RBS as it then was I remember the guy who was running corporate comms the wonderful chris turner said look brand love is nonsense all we have got to do is stop it being toxic make sure we're doing the right thing and make sure people don't hate us that'll do the guy who ran research the equally wonderful paul smith said oh well you know we can track how people are feeling. But actually, if we can get them to neutral, that'll be good. And then you have brand people going. oh, we've got to build brand love. <laughs> so the, <laughs> you know, what you've got to build is customer loyalty. And you do that by doing delivering the right service in the right way consistently. And then people will stay with you. And when you do it really well, they'll even tell other people that they like what you're doing. And, and then you can build that magic thing which is the biggest change in the time I've been there? It was always word of mouth, but now digital word of mouth is, of course, what everybody seeks. And you can't buy that. I know people buy influences, but that's also a transparent thing. You 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 get it and you earn it through doing the right thing consistently.
2: Well, in that in that case, to that point, um, advice for kind of say moving into like brand creation and, and new brands, would you have any advice? What would be your your words of wisdom to uh, to a new brand starting up in relation to kind of having that point and uh, and, and being kind of genuine um, uh, to, to an audience out there?
3: Well, it's you know, for a startup, I mean, obviously the first thing you've got to do is to get your value proposition right, you know, and you've got to be able to define it and deliver it. So what do we exist for? Who are we trying to attract? What are we going to deliver them? And how are we going to do that? And actually, you'll be then fulfilling one of my favorite brand quotes, which is Narun Surin one, a brand is what a brand does. People spend a bit too much time in startup land thinking about the mechanics of the marketing of the brand. And I always urge them, no, don't do that. Think about the business that you're delivering, and then the brand will emerge from that. But then there's an interesting thing. What are you going to call your business and why? And you guys are a great demonstration of that. And it's great that you've got a common story that you can engage people with. You know, you've got big, small, you've got your background, but you're cousins. So that's an intriguing, there's immediate empathy and there's immediate conversation. And very clever brands know how to do that. But it's quite difficult to kind of give brand advice to a startup. The most important advice is, you know, careful what you wish for, define it, deliver it, and your brand will emerge and it'll be strong these days you need to be clear on what your brand is what it stands for and how it delivers and this is the real point you know the point of enduring success is the clarity of what's the delivery here and the definition of it and that is you know brand is what it does you better make sure you're doing it the right way and then you will endure
2: helping brands to get to the point because there's so much unnecessary complexity around brand and marketing strategies but where do you, where do you think that complexity comes from
3: well, I mean, a lot of it is to do with, if you go back before the digital age fully arrived, I'm very good mates with Mark Sherrington, one of the founders of Added Value, and they, they had a great business. These are ex-Unilever marketeers who started their own business to help marketeers build their brand strategies and their brand frameworks. And they're always brilliantly put together and intellectually robust. But what they sometimes miss was whether anybody could bring that to life. One of the things that drove Martin nuts is they'd do all this beautifully crafted work. It would then be handed to an advertising agency who would ignore it and do something entirely different. Now, it, how you join it all up and how you deliver is the tricky thing, and how you simplify the intellectual bit. You've got to do the work. I mean, let me just be clear about that. I'm not advocating you skip straight over it, but there's no point. You know, I used to coach my leadership team, one of my the lady who ran business marketing, the wonderful maid, McMahon, first time she came with a deck to share it with me that she was going to share with the business leadership of the business. It was like 26, 28 PowerPoint charts, all very clever, all very detailed. I said, no, you've got to do it in one chart. Now, have the other 25 so that they can see that you've done your homework and you can show how you have worked out the math. But all of this boils down to these four points, doesn't it? Put that on one chart. Start with that and then have the conversation around the rest of it. But as I say, it, this is like, you know, do you remember maths teachers used to say, you've got to show your workings out. I mean, the same is true in marketing. You know, where, how did you scope out the market? What did you do to understand the competition? How did you understand the challenges ahead and how, and etc. But, you know, the answer is X is what people usually want to see. They don't want the PowerPoint charts that go into immense detail. But it's hard work to get there. There's bits that I'm ambivalent about here, because obviously, as I reflect back on the things I've done, the things I could have done better, this is an interesting area, because I was given the feedback once in the bank in one of the 360 things that people really enjoy the output, but you know they'd, they'd like a whole lot more if I could kind of show them how I got to the answer, because they, they thought I was being an intuitive marketeer, not a data-based one to which I was probably, at the time, I would have been, come on, come on, I know this stuff, let's just get to it, here's what we're going to do. And actually, you, you do need to take people with you on the journey is the key learning here, and you must have the empathy to understand that some people need different things. Some people like the show me the workings out, show me the data, show me how you got to this answer, show me the role of research, go through the whole thing, and then show me the answer. Other people want to cut to the chase, and you've got to mix and match. And there is the complexity of keeping it simple. But, you know, simplifying is not the same as simple. I think that's, I've just butchered an Einstein quote.
2: We're kind of, it was getting slightly onto onto the personal side and kind of whether you, um, I know you've talked about slow living um, uh, in the last few months, um, but have you now, do you think, as you said, you're in a reflective mood, have you found, do you think
3: you found your point? Oh, this is a fantastic question. Uh, Yes, I mean, one of the things I've really enjoyed is helping people grow and develop. And if I look at the number of people that were kind of juniors working with me and where they are now, uh, I take immense satisfaction thinking I might have helped them learn a bit and grow and develop along the way. So my point is to share what I have learned and simplifying what I've learned into useful ways so that other people can benefit from it and not have to make the same mistakes I did. It's probably something, um, which gives me real purpose.
2: I think that's an incredibly good point and, uh, probably the best, uh, best we've had yet That's uh, yeah, it's really quite nice and uh, lovely and inspiring. Um,
1: I mean, just as a fun last question, um, I wonder about, cause you're talking to a startup agency uh, and then um, we were going back to your old days at Saatchi and Saatchi in the eighties and, um, one, I suppose that must have been a bit of a ride. There are there interesting s- stories from that period? But and maybe it's a separate question: as to any advice for a, a kind of small agency looking to get big? Or
3: well, I mean, I think uh, so the,
1: two different things. Maybe there's a reflection on the early '80s, funny story, anything from there, and then advice for big small.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, one when, uh, when I was lucky enough to get my job back in March 1983 at Saatchi and Saatchi in Charlotte Street. It was a rabbit warren of an agency. And if you walk around the inside of it, down the back of, uh, it was parallel to Warren Street to go to the research department, past the production guys. Up on one of the corridor walls was, this is Saatchi and Saatchi. It was either nothing is impossible or everything is possible, I can't quite remember But it, That whole thing where everybody believed you could make anything happen, and you should be passionate about it and the power of creativity to solve problems. And if somebody wanted a poster up the next day, you'd find a way to do it, even if the production process was longer. And that, that, the whole ethos of that, Saatchi and Saatchi, was we can do anything here, and you know, we will get it done for you, Mr. and Mrs. Client. And actually, that belief in the power of creativity is what I learned there. And actually, the power of positivity and the power of believing that you can make things happen and not taking no for an answer and not allowing people say, I can't, you can't do this, you can't do that. Great lesson that stuck with me. And actually it was quite an alumni of marketeers and advertising people. And I've watched many of them take everything they learned there and grow and develop from it. And, And I learned a lot from that culture because it was a culture, it was a genuine meritocracy. You know, if you were passionate and good and worked hard and delivered the goods, they promoted you, you could get developed, there was none of that. Oh, you've got to be doing this for five years before you can do that. And my advice to great guys like you is, you know, if you believe in what you're doing and you're passionate about it, people will usually see the light shining out of your eyes, see the great work that you do, and actually good things will happen. Now, this is very easy to say, Remarkably difficult to do, I know that. But, you know, as I said to Ben, when you approached me, I liked your whole notion about, you know, good karma, because I believe in that. You know, good people flourish, bad people don't. Great work wins, bad work doesn't. Or Keith Weed said it beautifully, you know, miserable people get miserable results.
2: That's fantastic.
3: Thank you very much, David. All right, guys, a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Cheers. That was Getting to the Point. If you would like to get to the point, Big Small can help. Visit BigSmall.works and redefine your business in 12 weeks.
0: Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online.
1: I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true.
0: Chumba Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes.